The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the simplest, most powerful website creator that helps you make headlines with your own stunning online presence. Explore elegant templates, Getty image integration, and more at squarespace.com and use the code Guardian to get 10% off. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead. Mindful that many of you may be in a holiday mood, we're abandoning our usual seriousness to indulge you with a daily series of comic tales from some of our favourite writers. They range across fiction, non-fiction and memoir and are all part of a funny story special in The Guardian's Weekend magazine. You can read the text versions at theguardian.com. This is one of six podcasts we'll have for you. Enjoy. Two Families by Sheila Hetty. For a while, every time my brother came over for dinner, we would have to listen to him telling his jokes. Or rather, my boyfriend would go into the next room to play his video games, and I would have to listen to him telling his jokes, one after the other, until the night was long in the mouth and I felt too drunk and tired to listen any longer. When he had finished a joke, he would look at me expectantly. Not funny, I would say, or I don't get it, or else I would say, I get it, but I don't see how it's supposed to be funny. How is that a joke? He would look at me with disappointment, at which point I would tell him, I'm sorry I'm not one of your sophisticated comedy friends. At which point he'd say, You know I don't have any sophisticated friends. Then I would say I'm sorry. It's just that I was hurt and confused that these jokes which he thought were funny weren't funny to me at all. I felt he was making fun of our whole family with these jokes, making fun of what was a distinct family trait, our naivety, our instinct to take what anyone said for the truth. I felt this was the real content of his jokes, that he was born into a gullible family who believed the world was good and simple and that people weren't out to get them in any way. He performed this cynical persona in his joke-making, this nasty trickster whom no one in my family, not me, my mother, or my father, could ever believe existed. I felt implicated in our family failing when I discovered I couldn't laugh, Every time he looked at my face expectantly, I felt he was saying, Why aren't you laughing at this? You're normally so trusting. You normally believe whatever you're told. When he recounted his jokes, I felt keenly how often I did follow other people's leads, and how my not laughing at this joke was the exception that proved how foolishly I behaved with other people the rest of the time. During those years, I would travel to visit my brother in Montreal, where I would stay with him a few nights. He was always in some different, barely furnished apartment, which belonged to one of a group of stand-up comedians who were variously on the road. He would tell me, I'll be here till the 14th, then I tour the West Coast for 10 days, then I'm coming to stay at Dad's for two weeks, then I'm moving to New York. There was always some complicated schedule like this, which he never ultimately kept, or which he kept only with great difficulty. Often he would call me to work out his dates, and I would log into his calendar, and we would consult about it over the phone. I'd encourage him to see that his plan made good sense, not only logistical sense, but existential sense, that it was what he should be doing, that, in a sense, it was the only thing he could be doing. These conversations could last for hours. I would think we'd resolve things, then one week later he would call me again, and we would be back at the calendar, as though the previous week's conversation had never occurred. Why is your plan now impossible, when last week you thought it made sense? Don't you remember you got off the phone relieved? One of the comics cancelled, he would explain. 
which affected not only the tour, but somehow everything around it, as though one hitch dematerialized, like radiation emanating from a single cell, whatever was in its proximity. How can you live this way, I would ask him, on behalf of my parents, who at the time were calling me several evenings a week with their criticisms of him and their concerns. You have no job, you have no savings, I would say, trying to adopt their worry. He'd give me some explanation, and after hanging up, I would call my mother or father to reassure them that I had spoken to David and that he was fine, but by the time we reached the money part of the conversation, whatever assurances David had made would already have dissolved in my mind. I suppose his explanations weren't very plausible. Personally, I chalked up his financial luck to the art gods, who had mysteriously made it possible for me to survive through my twenties and thirties, too. I was constantly being saved at the last minute from debt or eviction by a hundred dollars here or two hundred dollars there. I was always astonished at the art god's tenacity, and how they seemed not to be paying attention, he had always at the last moment swooped in. Well, how did you survive, David asked me. I work very hard. I work hard, too. I know. Although I was only a shade more capable than he was, being the older child and female, I enjoyed the glow of prestige he gave me when he complimented me on my life-building skills. Me, who had been divorced in my twenties, never remarried, and was about to pass out of my childbearing years without any humans to show for it, out of apathy, laziness, and self-doubt. I had been renting the same cheap apartment for the past eight years, and my boyfriend and I lived with three pets, two of whom were incapable of being domesticated, and ruined with their teeth and shit everything we owned. An out-of-town friend who had once dropped by the apartment said it reminded him of the house in Fight Club. I rewatched Fight Club to see what he meant. It was a house strewn with blood and bottles, a house tended to by half-insane men. So it pleased me whenever my brother indicated that he felt I was doing it right. On a recent visit to Montreal, half an hour after arriving from the train, we decided to go to a bar. We smoked a joint as we walked down Saint Laurent. In the near distance was a window with pink light coming out of it. This is the place I thought you'd like, he told me, and we went inside. Because I was high, I couldn't understand its aesthetic. On the one hand, it looked like it had been decorated to accommodate a bejeweled harem. The room's accents were gold and pink, with low upholstered couches. Yet it was futuristic, too, with blinding white walls and clear bubbles you could sit in. The room was vast and deep, and there were no customers in it but us. The man who was making the martini seemed to take a very long time, and every move he made, he made with a great flourish, adorning the sides of our drinks with fruit peels swirled. Because I was not in my own city, I couldn't tell if the place was cool or weird or amazing or stupid. I asked my brother. I think it's cool, he said. We sat down with our drinks. He told me he had decided to call his album It Was Okay. I told him that I was trying to decide on the title for an autobiography I was planning to publish. It would consist of ten years of diaries, but the sentences would be arranged in alphabetical, not chronological order. I had a few ideas for titles, but wasn't convinced by any of them. He said, sipping his drink, You should call it Take My Life, Please. Oh my God, do you mean it? I couldn't tell if it was the most amazing title the book could have, or the absolute worst. I mean it. I think it both says what it is, and shows you don't take yourself too seriously. Whenever our conversation wandered too far from what a possible title for my book could be, a huge pulse of pleasure soared through me as I remembered it. Do you really think I should call it Take My Life, Please? It's kind of genius, right? When I woke the next morning, I saw I had written on my hand and pen, in two separate places, Take My Life, Please. Entering the kitchen and seeing David eating his oatmeal, I said, 
I know that last night I said I was definitely going to call my book Take My Life, Please, but now I'm not so sure I should call it that. Oh, you definitely shouldn't call it that, he said. You're a literary writer, not a comedian. When his first stand-up album was eventually published, then picked up by a well-respected American comedy label, my parents had to admit that my brother's unfunny jokes were probably funny. Even so, my father continued to worry about the fact that it was impossible for a comedian to become very big, to make a truly decent living, if he didn't make most people laugh. Listen to the album, I said. You can hear lots of people in the bar laughing. Just because the family doesn't find him funny doesn't mean no one else does. But his comedy should be for the majority of people. How will he ever get on TV? You can still have a career in comedy if only a small percentage of people think you're good, if it's the right people, other comedians, club owners. Did you read his latest interview? My father asked, changing the topic and steering us towards his ongoing agony. He mentioned three times that he's sad. He has to say that he's a comedian. That's part of their image. Besides, I don't think we're the intended audience for his interviews. It's not right for us to psychoanalyze him based on what he said in an interview. Did he tell you personally that he said? It's completely obvious that he's sad. I found nothing more disturbing than talking to my parents about my brother. Everything they felt was problematic about his attitude to life seemed to me proof that he was a real comic. I spent hours trying to persuade them that David was no different from any of the poets or painters I knew. I explained that few of us had any actual money, children, spouses, homes, stability, or futures to look into. I tried to get them to believe that David was a typical example of his genre, a genre they were unfamiliar with. But they took every detour away from believing me. My father, in particular, refused. So I slowly stopped participating in conversations about David, which meant that before long, my parents and I had little to talk about at all. Around this time, I realized that it had been seven years since my boyfriend and I had moved in together, a serious chunk of my life. He's the sort of man who doesn't believe what anyone says. Instead, he interprets for himself what other people say and believes his interpretations. He is a cop whose default assumption is that everyone is guilty of a crime and that there are plenty of minor daily crimes which everyone is always trying to talk themselves out of believing they've committed, and that it's his role, in a midwifey sort of way, to extract the truth, the truth of their guilt, against their desperate protestations of innocence. I, of course, like everyone else, fall into the category of the guilty. Because of all the time we have spent together, his view of the world has gradually seeped into mine. Of course everybody's lying all the time, I soon began to see. Why had I never realized it before? Of course few people have a happy marriage or a happy life, though almost everyone adopts that social presentation. Of course it isn't true, as my father tried to convince me one night over the phone, that 80% of Americans are happy, as some survey in the newspaper said. Why did my father believe this statistic? Do 80% of Americans look happy? And what's to prevent someone from lying over the phone to a tin can voice? During most of our years together, I violently resisted absorbing my boyfriend's point of view on the world. It seemed so mistrustful and cynical to me. But a few years in, I couldn't help but see things a little bit his way. And with my darkened outlook on everything, I began to understand David's jokes. I even started finding them funny. Several weeks ago, I found myself laughing after dinner as David sat across from me, relaying them one by one. Yes, it's good, I chuckled. I like that one a lot. I began to feel that I was part of a new little family of my boyfriend and my brother, and that my parents, though 20 years divorced, constituted their own little family, taking everything at face value and worrying about their son. 
For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com/audio.